thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Why do Americans born in the rural South carry a heavier burden of disease and often die earlier than people born in metropolitan regions across our country? It's a question with no simple answer that continues to confound doctors and public health experts. Our guest today is a cardiologist and one of 50 investigators across the U.S. Trying to get to the bottom of that question, Dr. David McManus is the Marcellette G. Williams Distinguished Scholar and an Associate Professor of Medicine and Population and Quantitative Health Sciences here at UMass Medical School. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So let's talk about this. Uh, we're talking about the rural study, we should say, mm -hmm. and rural stands for risk underlying rural areas longitudinal study. That's yeah, a mouthful. It is a mouthful. I love everything, you know, has an abbreviation in yep. academia. And it's funded by the National Institutes of Health, more than $21 million over six years. So what's the reality for um, these population, these rural populations in the South, and what is it that you're hoping to learn? Um, thanks for asking. My um, take on this very exciting study is I think it's an illustration of what um, researchers uh, can do when they work collaboratively uh, to put together a really competitive uh, proposal into the federal government and collaborate with um, areas of real interest at a national level to Americans. And so we know uh, that uh, folks in rural areas, particularly throughout um, uh, areas in the southeast and southern U.S., uh, with, there are actually some areas called the stroke belt, for example, because of the very high rates of um, of stroke that occur, but high blood pressure, um, heart attack rates, and deaths from heart disease are disproportionately high in certain areas that are predominantly rural. And although that's been, been a, um, a recent development, it has not always been the case. It's not always been no. that way? No. And in fact, uh, there seems to be a widening gap in terms of health disparities between rural America and urban centers. And, you know, there, there are many hypotheses uh, and observations um, that uh, play into why that might be, but we proposed a, a, a real systematic uh, epidemiologic approach to compare communities with very high rates of, of cardiovascular disease to um, regional um, uh, areas near them, also rural, where they were outliers uh, with respect to uh, positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a sense, we're comparing folks who are following the trends uh, of high rates in terms of zip codes or areas, if you will, communities where there are high rates, to neighboring, in some cases, or at least nearby communities where they don't seem to have the same problem to mm -hmm. see what factors might be driving this discrepancy. Because it is possible to break the mold and not have to live in a rural area, there's nothing intrinsic necessarily right. about it that drives the, the high heart disease rates. So we're talking about, um, in the rural study, parts of Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And so, as you said, it's a six-year study. It's mm -hmm. not, we don't know the answers yet, but mm -hmm. what are some of the hypotheses? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it access? Is it diet? Is it... Or, or Keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the, the, first of all, I want to be clear that this study, as you said, is a six-year study it's large in scope. Um, it involves a number of different strategic partners in the states that you mentioned. Um, and you may say, why did you choose these particular areas? They're not contiguous states. You know, they're not necessarily all um, uh, in the same geographic region. 
Um, one, um, all of them share the fact that they have high areas, uh, uh, rural uh, areas in their states. Uh, uh, B, many of them have high heart disease rates in these communities. C, there is a um, community health network uh, and an academic medical center willing to partner with us and really bring their uh, community uh, research experience to the table. And then, you know, it, the whole team is led by um, uh, Dr. Vasan Ramachandran, who's um, a longtime collaborator of mine who, who led the Framingham Heart Study. And the concept behind rural is really the way Vasan describes it is Framingham on wheels. It's bringing the science to the people, which is, you know, Framingham, which is this seminal investigation where I cut my teeth as a, as a research fellow um, and still collaborate is the gold standard epidemiology study uh, of heart disease. Right, so that's, that's where smoking decades. was discovered to be a risk factor, high blood pressure was identified to be a risk factor for heart disease, and it involved people coming to the research center from the community in Framingham and then their children and their children's children to learn about how uh, behaviors and exposures influence risk of disease. And you have to follow people for a while, you have to really build trust with them. But the model, um, because it requires that people come to the research center, is in some ways exclusive, right? So you have to have the time, the money, the willingness, transportation. Uh, the transportation, the ability to take a day off of work. And so if you really want to get at, and also it requires geographic co-location. Right, it's embedded in the Framingham community, and so for all the good and bad of that, it, it, it's, it's linked to that community. So Framingham on Wheels takes that model and kind of flips it on its head and says, we, instead of requiring that you come to us, we're gonna go to you, and we're gonna go to places where we can meet easily for you, break down some of the barriers to research participation, um, and we're going to study some of the factors such as financial insecurity, uh, job insecurity, um, issues around um, a built environment uh, that may impact things like how active you are. Um, my, some of our hypotheses are, for example, that despite being in areas of great natural be beauty, some of the access to parks and walkable areas um, may be limited. Diet, as you said, you know, what, what's the availability of you know, healthy food in certain communities? So if you really want to study that, uh, you, you have to avoid what's called selection bias in a study where the people who sometimes are most interested in research and have the most resources uh, participate more frequently in studies. We want to try as best we can um, to partner with communities to break down some of those barriers to, to research participation and be a really inclusive study that allows for us to, you know, to involve uh, what I would say is uh, sometimes uh, populations of people, not necessarily just what everybody thinks of first, which may be race. We're looking to get great racial diversity in our cohort, but also diversity with respect to socioeconomic status and other factors that I think really are important at driving the levels of stress and, um, and cardiovascular disease in these communities. In the rural study, you are leading the mobile health part, uh, along with Jamal Matthew, PhD, who's the Chief Research Informatics Officer here at UMass Medical School. So can you tell us about the mobile platform that you're designed to, to handle all the mm -hmm. data, and what is the data that you're gathering? Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about, of course, as, we, as any researcher is, their, their piece, right? So my piece of this larger uh, investigation is, involves um, what's called mobile and digital health. And that's really where my research um, uh, lives, and that's what I've been doing with Framingham. So in Framingham, we built a platform to allow people to download an app onto their smartphones, 
to pair it with a wrist-based wearable device. Like a uh, Fitbit. Like a Fitbit or a, a, an Apple Watch, mm -hmm. um, and to be able to interact with us back at home base of the research center to fill out a survey around how active are you this week, uh, what's called these sort of ecological momentary assessments that are ways of gathering information in the moment about what are you eating, what are you doing, um, and we can gather data on how many steps you have in that particular day. And interestingly, um, we're doing an analysis right now in Framingham, and men do a very poor job of actually estimating how active they are, whereas <laughs> women are much more um, concordant between what's on their wrist and what they tell you, which I found interesting. We'll see if those analyses hold up. Just to as an aside. aside. But for example, this is where mobile data can complement the data that's traditionally obtained uh, via a written survey. Mm -hmm. We can see how you're sleeping. We can see um, how active you are. We can see how, um, how your heart is behaving in terms of heart rate variability off of commercially available wearable devices. And when complemented by some in-the-moment surveys, including also some things that you might not feel as comfortable talking about in front of another person, like how much did you drink today of alcohol? So these are factors that we're going to gather through this mobile platform um, that we've built and deployed at scale previously in the context of rural. So we're really, really excited about that. That must just be a tidal wave of data coming your way. It so is a lot, how yes, are you yes. Analyzing it, and so you're marrying this data that you're getting from the Fitbit, the wrist device, mm -hmm. and you're uh, coupling that with surveys. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with all that? Right. How do you begin to analyze it? Well, that's, that. can we have a separate podcast where we really <laughs> dive deep on that? I would say right. this, that, um, you have correctly identified one of the major challenges with mobile health research is the data um, uh, overload. Um, the, the fact that each data stream is only as valuable as how you label it, organize it, present it um, uh, in a meaningful way, and marry it to the other data. So we'd love to be able to do a study where we could look at um, comparing, for example, within the context of the research van where people are getting a coronary calcium score, okay, and they're defining their cardiovascular risk, wouldn't it be great to compare how much coronary disease you have to your activity levels from your Fitbit? So that requires that you have a data coordinating center that pulls all these data streams in and labels them and allows researchers to, to use them. So my hope is to create a rich resource that allows for mobile health to be seamlessly integrated in with this other uh, data, as we've done for Framingham. And it takes a team, takes a village, um, and a number of my collaborators uh, within rural are experts at um, data coordination. And Jamal Matthew, for example, you mentioned, her role will be to help me manage these data streams and integrate them. And how long do you think it'll be before you begin to have some results? Yeah, so we begin enrollment in rural uh, next summer. Mm -hmm. um, and our first site will be Alabama. So we'll begin to gather data um, in 2020. Um, the study will continue through 2020, 2021, all the way probably into 2022. I think we should start to have data empowering empower some uh, cross-sectional studies pretty soon thereafter. So it'll be several years before we see um, meaningful um, analyses of these data. But um, I'm really excited about once that door is open, I really want rural to be a resource for other, especially young researchers who have great ideas, things I haven't even thought of yet, to be able to come in and hopefully there'll be an exponential growth in research productivity from this data set soon thereafter. 
We're speaking with Dr. David McManus. He's director of the Anticoagulation Service at UMass Memorial Medical Center and section chief of Connected Health in the Department of Cardiology. So the rural study isn't the first time that you've fused technology and data with clinical care of your patients. So why do you think that this is um, so worthwhile? Wow, um, I think that, that, great question. I think that dig, the promise of digital uh, medicine is uh, that it can enhance uh, understanding of disease and its pathophysiology, improve diagnosis, improve treatment, better informed treatment. You know, there's this thing called precision medicine that a lot of people link up with genetic testing, for example, or targeted therapies based on your genome. But to be honest with you, it should also mean information based on your environment, your zip code that matters as much as your genetic code is right. often said. But how do you get at that? Because often as a, I'm a, a clinician myself, I'm a cardiologist, and I see a patient maybe for a couple hours a year. What's going on in the other, you know, 364 days or 363 days of their life? Um, and digital devices that are uh, so familiar to all of us, our smartphones, wearable tech, um, that's only going to grow over time. And I think people have expressed an interest. Uh, this is kind of like the voice of the uh, consumer, so to speak. They're buying these devices. They're interested in using them to inform their workouts, their, their, their sleep, their behaviors. It would, it would be foolish for us in medicine uh, to not try to take advantage of the interest of, of uh, uh, our customers, in a sense, and our patients um, if it helps inform better treatment. The issue is, of course, that in many cases, these devices have not been integrated into our healthcare systems. And I think we're at a moment where between the integration of electronic health records as a requirement um, to, uh, so they're nearly ubiquitous now across medical practices, and we're in many cases using the same types of software. Now you have actually a platform for taking devices and integrating digital data into the clinical environment, into the workflow, if you will, of a clinician. So it's really an exciting time, and I think the, the promise is there, the and I think it's, the potential is, right there. is there, and it's palpable. Um, and there are some early wins. Um, there's yeah. been this big Apple Heart study, for example, that's been publicized where uh, a number of new discoveries are leading to the FDA clearance of wearable technologies as medical devices. Mm. So, uh, and this is just happening as we're having this podcast. So it's a really, um, we're kind of in this pioneering phase of digital medicine, but I, I think it's gonna stick around for a little while. And so it's probably only gonna grow in the future. And, and we were talking earlier, and, and so it's important, I think, to note that this can be used, digital mobile health, tools can be used for people who have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It can also be used as a really powerful screening tool. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about the example um, in, in the case of atrial fibri fibrillation sure. or AFib. Sure. So um, it, first off, in terms of level setting, folks uh, may not know about this disease. AFib is, a, is, as it's known and I'll refer to going forward, Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, is a heart rhythm problem, and it's very common. It's estimated that about six million people in the United States have it, um, and there are a number of people, probably, although we don't know for sure, around a million people walking around with it that don't know they have mm. it. Because um, often there are no symptoms. Right, so There's about no half blood. of the time, people will not be aware of any symptom, and uh, some of the people with symptoms just feel tired or short of breath, and they may attribute it to just getting older and not know that it's from a heart problem. So in many cases, patients will present to their doctor 
with the complication of AFib as the first manifestation that they have the disease. And, and what it, might that be? Yeah, and so the, the dreaded complication of atrial fibrillation is a stroke that oh. leaves you really disabled. So it's, it's a real shame that you couldn't uh, identify this, this problem, which I like to explain to patients, when it's diagnosed early, I can make AFib like gray hair, something that you may not want to have that's associated with getting older, but it ain't going to kill you. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast, AFib that's untreated and undiagnosed can really, as I mentioned, life particularly through stroke and congestive heart failure, really lead to decline in health and quality of life. So, so um, catching it early it's, is it's even a, more So that's critical. the sort of significance of the rhythm problem. So how do digital devices fit in and what, what sort of research have we done in this area? Well, um, AFib is diagnosed conventionally via a test in a doctor's office. A 12-lead EKG is the test that we use. It's been around since the early 1900s, and it's the same technology over you know, this period of time. So um, there's room for improvement. Mm -hmm. um, because as I said, you can develop AFib um, uh, outside of the doctor's office, not know you have it, and um, not, uh, you know, it can come and go, it can be minimally symptomatic. So what do you do with that problem? Well, enter uh, digital devices. And um, what we did uh, uh, using a, a FDA-cleared device that's a mobile, um, it looks like a credit card. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, made by a company called AliveCore. And we took this device to first India, actually, on a, a grant sponsored by UMass Med School. And we did a community research project where we trained uh, health workers to go into communities in rural India and use these devices to screen and understand the epidemiology of AFib in an area where no doctor with a 12-lead EKG had ever gone. Interesting. And so we learned a lot about the fact that, first of all, AFib is in India, and some of the uh, epidemiology of AFib is, I think, wrong, uh, mm -hmm. suggesting that there are certain populations that don't have it. I think it's just screening bias, which means that these people aren't getting screened. But we also learned how to use these devices and what was involved in deployment, and we used that knowledge to inform a trial closer to home. So uh, piloted here at UMass but deployed within the Partners Health System is an ongoing cluster randomized trial where we actually randomized clinics to receive these devices. And we trained and uh, medical assistants in the clinics to, as they're getting vital signs, check a, a person over the age of 65 for AFib using a, a digital uh, device and an algorithm that says AFib yes or no. So that, along with height, weight, so blood pressure. So they're doing the traditional vital signs, you're getting weighed in, you're getting your blood pressure, the medical assistant says to you, hey, would you like to be screened for AFib? You say yes, put your fingers on this device for 30 seconds, and you have a result. That result is presented to the uh, primary care doctor. These are all primary care clinics where a lot of the screening currently happens for chronic diseases in the U.S. And so we've, we've just sort of exiting this study. We're finishing enrollment, and it was a wildly successful study with respect to implementation. The doctors and clinics embraced this that were randomized to it, um, and there were eight clinics that received these kiosks or the screening devices, and eight are our, our, our controls. And although the final results aren't published, we're, we're really pleased with how this digital technology was able to be implemented uh, into a very busy, uh, contemporary clinical practice. We're really excited to see whether or not it ends up that we pick up on more AFib mm -hmm. in the people who get screened versus the conventional care. Because conventional care is good. Doctors are, are still detecting a lot of AFib. The question is, can we detect it a little better? Can we help them by presenting um, a diagnosis that maybe they were focused on another condition for that visit? Maybe they were there for a flu shot and they didn't have time to do a full exam. 
So our hope is that it, it shows incremental improvement over a conventional care, but even if it just is a, a, a lesson learned about implementation science of digital technologies, it's still been a highly valuable study. And depending on what those results are, maybe it could be, you know, uh, proved to be a pilot and something that could be adopted more widely. That's the hope, that because I would really, I mean, there are some countries like Italy or Australia where they screen the entire population for, uh, with an EKG. When, really? Uh, yeah, as they're uh, largely focused on younger folks. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, actually, in Sweden and other places, they've actually started about implementing system-wide screening for AFib with, uh, with EKGs and digital devices. Um, but the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force has just said, we just don't have enough information on whether or not this leads to fewer strokes. And so we need studies like Vital AF to show, A, you can find more of the disease, B, it leads to the treatment, and C, that outcomes improve. And so what is the standard here in the U.S.? The there's no requirement for people no to get an EKG? No, there's no systematic uh, screening, meaning there's no, you hit a certain age and you get an EKG rule. Interesting. What there is is the recommendation for um, oper what's called opportunistic assessment, meaning you go in to see the doctor, especially if you're over 65, they're supposed to be feeling your pulse and looking for AFib, but as sort of catches catch can, my dad would say, and so it's not, um, systematic, it's not routine, and it's not clearly recommended. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we're looking to change. Did you always want to be a cardiologist? Uh, that, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> no, I, I love being a cardiologist, and I think uh, in retrospect, I always, uh, as a kid, my dad was a math and computer uh, teacher. Um, I had a TRS-80, um, and so I came up in so an, an era when personal, yeah, personal computing uh, was, was there. So I actually came to medicine more as someone interested in technology. And so as a now cardiac electrophysiologist, I implant defibrillators. I basically am implanting computers and, and interacting with them. So I've always been interested in computer human being interactions. And I, I think that um, there's never been a better time to have that sort of shared interest. And also the, the heart itself is kind of a pretty cool computer system. So it, it's, a, it's a neat, um, it's a neat marriage. One of the original computers. Yeah, right, that's right. Yeah. I don't want to let you go before asking you about the support AF study. Um, and we talked earlier about how the widespread use and acceptance of electronic health records is really supporting a mm -hmm. lot of this work that right. you're excited about. Right. Um, and the support AF study is certainly an example of that. Right. So um, thanks for asking about it. I think that the reason I'm really excited about support AF is in part because it's, it's a homegrown study where UMass medical system is becoming known as kind of a, a forward-thinking gold star place to, uh, in terms of quality of care using um, digital medicine's sort of electronic health record piece. So people talk about mobile digital devices, um, but they don't always think about the electronic health record itself as a tool to inform uh, better treatment. So what sponsored by actually both the UMass medical system um, and the UMass Medical School, uh, as well as some professional societies uh, interested in quality, we got um, resources together and built an algorithm that links patients with known AFib, based on data in their electronic health record, to their doctors who are responsible for them, and that's harder than you may think, and uh, figuring out among the 8,000 records were of people who you may have seen for your toe or oh for my. you. So who, who actually is the primary care doctor? Who, who would respond to a message? Who's responsible for treating the AFib? So we built some algorithms, some logic behind linking doctors to patients. Um, we also built logic behind whether or not they were treated. 
and we basically defined your profile from the provider's perspective about how across all of your patients, how you're doing in terms of following guideline recommendations. Now, what we did is a, a trial, which is wrapping up, where we randomly assigned people who, um, uh, all of whom had to have a certain number of AFib patients here in our system to receive some messaging to say, hey, first of all, at a 30,000 foot perspective, here's how you're doing, Dr. Berryman, you have 50% treatment rate. Um, Dr. McManus may have a 20% treatment rate. When you're practicing in the same city, in the same clinic, uh, a lot of the same challenges, that discrepancy maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. So we present that data to you privately. Mm -hmm. We also provide you with some education around treatment. And we also, when the patient is coming in to see you, provide you an electronic message to say, hey, you might want to think about you know, treating this atrial fibrillation a little bit differently. So we've seen during this trial period, although the trial itself I can't unwrap yet, um, I'll tell you that in the period that this has been running, we've seen a, a market improvement uh, to a, a, a really a gold standard level of treatment. And around the same time, UMass got an American Heart Association Gold Star Award for AFib quality. Awesome. And we're really excited about the fact that the health system and our patients have seen benefit from some of the research that has been also housed here at the medical school. And I think it's a really cool collaboration between our patients, our doctors, our health system, and our, I should also add our pharmacists and specialty pharmacy who were really involved in helping actually get the patients linked to drugs at low cost uh, because that was a big barrier in some cases. That's really what it's all about, isn't yeah. it? That cycle of identifying yeah. issues with your patients and then doing research and improving the care yeah. that your and that's patients been, can that's get. been really a gratifying experience and I'm really grateful to you know, all of the, um, everybody from the, you know, uh, as I said, the teams of pharmacists, clinicians, but uh, you know, also the health systems um, leadership and medical school who in some cases you know, had to trust and invest in this um, when it wasn't entirely clear that it was gonna work. Uh, but it, fortunately it did, so I get to stay here and talk to you. <laughs> well, we'll be keeping our eyes uh, for how all of those studies turn out. I know that uh, there's a lot of work still ahead and, and we'll be looking for it. So Dr. David McManus, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.